everyone, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. From Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith. The Spanish came uh, roughly 80 years before the 1851 treaty, which took place uh, among the uh, Cajon Indians, or what I call the Tehachapi Alliance of Tribes, and that includes the Mountain Chumash, including the Tashlapun, and their long-established friendship and allies with the Kitamanuk people and with the Yoku people, who are Penutan-speaking people. Soon after the signing of the treaty, the senators in Washington, D.C. decided collectively to hide the treaties, to put them in a vault, and keep them hidden away for 50 years to ensure that the Native peoples couldn't go to court and claim their treaty rights. Today on American Indian Airwaves, Beyond Missions, the history of the Chumash Nation, our ongoing series with today's episode focusing exclusively on the Tahon Chumash here on American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone Close to over 50 years, Dr. John M. Anderson has been researching into and writing on Chumash history and culture since the early 1970s at the University of California, Santa Barbara. His research includes the Tahone Reservation in California and the treaty with the Castaic Tahone, etc. of 1851 between several California indigenous nations whose lands range from presently what is known as Santa Maria to Lompoc to Santa Barbara, Ventura, Los Angeles, and Long Beach and stretching eastwardly into the Mojave Desert to a point somewhere between Barstow and Las Vegas. On today's program, we focus exclusively on the Tahon Chumash with Marcus Lopez of the Chumash Nation and Executive Director of American Indian Airwaves starting the interview as part of our ongoing series, Beyond Missions, The History of the Chumash Nation with Dr. John M. Anderson. Before we get started, in part one, we had a really good discussion regarding Chumash history. And uh, some of the terms, and I think we want to go back to that for a second and talk about some of the names so we can get in clear on those names uh, for our listeners. So why don't we go back to Chumashia, and I'll go down the names of the Chumash names in the towns and villages, which in your writings you are focusing on and right in respect to the Chumash villages and names, you focus on the 
Chumash names in the respective villages and townships that were around this whole area. So uh, I wanted to explain that to our listeners. So that's why one on the top of the discussion talks about these different names that it really means something as we go on in our discussion and we're talking about Tehon. What do you mean, first of all, about Shumashia? Well, I use that term in my writings to refer to the territory of all the Chumash-speaking people, which is this very large area of Southern California. It extends from Bakersfield in the southeast to past uh, San Luis Obispo, uh, further north than that, and all the way along the coastline to the edge of uh, L.A., which would be the Humalabu Chumash area. And in the ancient times, the coastal area, what we call Ventura and Santa Barbara County, or the Santa Barbara Channel, was divided into two provinces. Uh, one of the provinces, the capital was at, uh, what I call Zizo, that's their Chumash name, at Point Conception. And the eastern province was at Point Magoo, at the town called Muwu. Um, but when you go, well, one of the things we talked about is the uh, Shumash Chumash, uh, the Santa Barbara Chumash, their ties are inland and in the area of Tashlapun, far inland in the high mountains. And Tashlapun is located on the slopes of the sacred mountain Iwahimu. And that's really important to know uh, as you read this handbook because the Tohon Chumash were essentially guardians of the sacred center, uh, it, which also included Watawat Lake uh, at the foot of the, of the mountain. And the drainage went uh, north from there into the Tashlatun Canyon. And much of what we will talk about in this particular handbook are the villages that were interacting uh, from Tashlatun all the way to Castake Lake, which by the name, by the way, it's gotten renamed Tohon Lake by the Tohon Ranch. Uh, again, marginalizing the original uh, native name. I think it's very important to keep that Castake uh, name in your mind. It was the capital of the Mountain Shumash of the eastern area, and Tasilpun was it, uh, the other large uh, town of influence. So those are some of the names to keep in mind as you, you work your way through this handbook. And the Spanish came you know, uh, roughly 80 years before the 1851 treaty, which took place uh, among the uh, Tohon Indians, or what I call the Tehachapi Alliance of Tribes. And that includes the Mountain Chumash, um, including the Tashlapun, and their long-established friendship and allies with the Kitamanuk people, and, who are Uto-Aztecian, and with the Yoku people, who are Panutan-speaking people. And this alliance signed a treaty in 1851, and there had been 80 years of, of repression by the Spanish on the coast, and also inland to a lesser degree as the uh, various uh, missions, or what I call production centers, which produced materials for the occupying army and, and for the settlers who were going to take the land of the coastal Chumash. And the, the people from the coast who 
wanted to escape the tyranny there, fled inland to the towns that are discussed in this book, and that's the Tehachapi Alliance towns. That's so important to understand, John, because of the fact that we tend to only look at certain websites and certain very few history books in the Chumash, and that's why we're having the discussion. Now, you you mentioned certain of these um, areas and villages, and I'll use, the, I'll use the term tribes, but yet on the background of we're going to discuss before the treaty of 1851, the Tohon Treaty, what led up to this? And you, you, you mentioned the Kuya and Muwu and uh, the uh, Tashkipun folks. Um, how did revolt, like and we know that, and we'll get to that later on down our series about the 1824 revolt that really operated and uh, were not only one incident and one rebellion, but many of the a personal existential rebellions as well as the overall rebellions within the Shumash, Shumashia, within Shumash territory. But these missions created and the invasion created the movement of people in the all the way from the west and all the way from the east as you look at the nation as a whole. What gave rise to the importance of what we now referring to the Tohon, but or the Huna Master, and what gave rise to everybody congregating in that area? Well, first of all, it was very fertile The uh, where the reservation was set up, and a lot of the uh, towns being mentioned in this brief handbook were uh, at the, in the foothills where there was lots of water coming down out of the Tehachapi Mountains. And they had a very prosperous life. The Castaic people who led the mountain Chumash were on Castaic Lake, uh, again, uh, a, a water uh, area. And the water from that lake, by the way, came from Iwahimu Mountain, drained off the eastern slopes, and came downhill uh, to Castaic and then to the, at the uh, foothills, um, Matapquokwell which was a, a relatively large town, at least a significant place as, as history kept changing. Uh, and that's now, uh, by the way, where there's a large truck stop on uh, the freeway 5 just before it splits. Uh, and Matap Quelquel, I always thought that truck stop should be named after that, but that's another story. Um, and if you go uh, just a little bit, um, west of Matapquoquo is Takuya Canyon. Now, now, that's the name that still sticks with that canyon, and that's where the Takuya Chumash, who were extremely uh, hostile to the uh, colonials on the coast, uh, they had their home there and added to the defense of the uh, rest of the Tehachapi Alliance uh, towns, and not just the Chumash, but the Katamanuk, the Okut, uh, and they were, I uh, traced their uh, lineage back to the uh, West Coast, the, uh, the area we would uh, call Sakupi, and that's Parisima Mission, 
when they had their uh, large population exodus, and those are the people who came to Tukuya. They they went through the mountains and and came to that canyon where they were uh, protected and joined in the fight to protect that area against intrusion of, of colonial, mostly um, ranchers who were trying to come over the mountains and use the Central Valley for their herds, which of course would destroy the food sources of the native people. I thought it was incredible, John, what you were discussing about it, because you can see all the way from the um, Supakai, the, the village over there in Lombok, and the mission that got destroyed, and then the full from the people that were resisting and the exodus, much like the refugees, went over the Samala River all the way back there, all the way back country over here, where I live in the back country, or yeah. north of here, and then even some of the Lapin, and then people from Mugu, and then people from, obviously, from um, uh, uh, the Smoish people went over there, too, to run away from the missions, and that either rebelled and were the refugees and the migrants, and that's how I wanted you to explain, and like, like you do some of the writings, but it's the background of that area, and a lot of times you mention as uh, easier for the English-speaking and reading audience that what, what all these different peoples were categorized as a mountain Chumash, but you have all the subdivisions within that. Is, that. is that not right? Yeah, that's accurate, because they were, one of my writings is called Toshlapun Pact, and in there I discuss how the people of Toshlapun were closely allied with the Catholic Church at the Santa Barbara Mission, Tanayan, and how they uh, were, like, they sent the priests there, sent the half Chumash, half Spanish soldier, parental people, young men, to Tashlipum, and they, they were cooperating with the gold mining that, that was taking place, and silver, uh, in the interior of California, away from the eyes of the Spanish troops, the monarch, monarchy. Um, and Tashlipun got along with the rest of the Mountain Chumash, but were considered a distinct group taking a great risk working with the Catholic Church. And we want to remind listeners, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Dr. John M. Anderson as part of our ongoing series, Beyond Missions, the History of the Chumash Nation, with today's episode focusing on the Tohon Chumash. And now back to the interview. And now, John, the gold was way before 1848 and so on, you know, before that. Yes. for that, but where was the gold? Well, first of the research would be the 17, uh, almost 1770s, uh, where the Spanish, 69 actually, when the Spanish invaded California overland from Fort Tubac in Arizona, there's good evidence to suggest that the prospecting priest had already found the gold in California and that's what triggered the invasion, not all kinds of other explanations provided by historians sympathetic with the Spanish Empire. So that was kind of like the backstory of all this that no one wants to put forward because there's a lot of 
economic incentives rather than just, you know, uh, what what is it? That saying goes... Kill the Indian, save the man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Besides that, there were... And that was... That was... That was incredible that they, that they were dealing with hostile priests as uh, at the same time their hostility not only against the native people which is that, that we won't get into that theological argument so much but i mean at the same time the catholic church uh was very against the state of spain and later on mexico and that's where this uh, the the process of uh, circularization and uh the downing of the missions but yet you talked about in your writing before. I wanted to get to the 1851 Tejon Treaty, but because a lot of people don't don't know that too much people have a treaty, and that is yes. incredible to number one find out, and second of all, that what happened to it. We'll get into it later. But what you said, and I read it. It says, even this reduced state, Tejon was still one of the most powerful native military alliances in Southern California. And the, you talked about the clandestine pact was designed to win church help in resisting Spanish and Mexican military raids against the mountain Jumash. Talk about that for us. Well, Marcus, that's a very complex story, and I, I think you have to move back to the coast to begin to understand it. I propose that Muwu, uh, which is the provincial capital of the southeastern Chumash, that includes what we would call Ventura County, coastal Ventura County, and the um, Limu Island, Santa Cruz. Uh, their council prospered greatly because they're at Simomo, which are in the wetlands there near Muwu. They developed immunity to the plagues that were just devastating the Chumash, the coastal Chumash, for about 300 years. And Kitsi Powell describes four great plagues, and one of them he describes as a civil war between Muwu and the mountain Chumash, and the other three were medical uh, plagues, which basically depopulated the area a, a number of times. So when at that point, just before the Spanish invaded, the Simomo was the largest town in the area and it sent its surplus people to Limu, to Santa Cruz Island, where they took over the empty towns on, on the southern coast, not all of them, but many of them, including Swahil and Kashwa, two large seaports, and they built a powerful alliance. So when the Spanish came, the Father Sarah wanted to put the, a major fort. There were only three big forts, uh, built in California by the Spanish, and one was San Diego, the other was up uh, in near Fort Rumson. There actually was one in San Francisco, and so there were four. And he wanted to put the middle one in Ventura, in an area near uh, Sicilope, the big seaport there. And right, Boo right. did not want that to happen. And so I think that they because they had power over the Santa Barbara Chumash at that time, they sent the fort to Santa Barbara, which was a catastrophe for the people of Santa Barbara, the Chumash. And they, they, uh, the Teneon, the Santa Barbara Mission, what I call Production Center, was built to supply that fort with food and supplies. 
And you have to understand that process because the Sumish sent these young men to Tashlapun and they were working with the church to smuggle gold through the desert area of California where it would be very difficult for the Spanish military to detect any shipments across uh, to the Colorado River, stopping at the Tahon, Katamanuk towns and moving through to Mara, which is the great oasis there at 29 Palms, and then down through the, um, the, the desert area to the crossing of the Halchikoma, and that's at Needles. This whole story, it ties together so much of Chumash history, and it, basically it's a story that's not told in most uh, history books. Hey, John, it was, it was something like, you have to realize, and I think the story, we have to realize that um, way long time ago, it, it was on foot, and waiting with the Spaniards come, maybe some horses, but yet the natural way, you might say, of travel was a lot what you're describing. And a lot of us today, we might just get in a car and just hop on and take a, a 10 or 40 or whatever, and 15 down San Diego, down in Baja, and don't realize that in them days, some of the areas, and let's go back to Tejon, uh, some of the uh, areas where the population passed through, also those great Chumash people were very much traders and very much economic base because of the population and the and the um, this dichotomy between the mountains and the ocean and all the richness that went through that five economic and biological more than biological climates, you might say, and that the richness of it, they, they were very much traders, and that's why these different passes throughout, uh, when you go through up the hill, the grapevine, or down over there, or by San Luis Obispo, or down by Santa Monica, when you go to San Fernando to Santa Monica, and all these areas, and down south further, that, um, that these passes were very important points in which, trade, and therefore military alliances and military, um, 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 native military alliances in Southern California, particularly within the Tahone area, was was vital. Now, yes, it's a long history, but yet we, don't want, we want to give the listeners a kind of a picture view. They're going to have to go back in the website uh, in, in order to look at that. Uh, John Addison Library dot net to to look at the other writings about it but when we talk about that it's the background of now um the the american federal government signed the treaty with the chumash and the allies in 1851 now the yes. the the and were the people, there's a couple more, but were the people that signed the 1851 treaty. Once you talk to us about the treaty a little bit, about the background, the characters that uh, were important during that treaty. Well, in 1851, 
the U.S. military was very vulnerable. It did not have enough soldiers to uh, suppress the Native Americans that, um, and, the Spa and the Mexicans, including the Mexican military. And when the gold was found, many of the uh, patriotic Americans uh, fled, went AWOL, and went to the mines to get rich. So the point being that the, the military came to Tejon vulnerable and was trying to sign the diplomats representing the federal government were trying to sign a series of treaties with the Native Americans to uh, relocate them for the mount from the mountains where the Americans were convinced the gold was located to what they considered the worthless Central Valley, which of course is now a paradise of, of agriculture, and uh, it also contained vast amounts of, of oil wealth. And so they quite easily, you know, uh, set aside huge uh, treaty homelands for these native peoples as long as they would get out of the gold-bearing mountains. So Tejon was one of those treaties. It was the last one. And they came now, in now, John, Tejon. I don't John, I don't want yeah, to interrupt you this, but before our listeners, for our listeners, they can go back and some of your books on the Yoko Shield, you know, talks about that, the whole resistance within all the way up to Sacramento down, all the way to Tejon and further on down. But that if you people want to look at that, but you were talking, I just wanted to uh, um, insert that for our listeners and that, you know, this, um, this treaty, like what you talked about, focused on not only one element of Tejon, but yet the Tejon area was uh, very much, it was a strategic yes. place in which uh, the treaty needed to be, or some type of, of resolution to the resistance of Native peoples in that area that you, you were going to lead it toward that way. So I want you to talk about that for us, please. I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, that's fine. Basically, you have the Chumash, the Mountain Chumash, led by Castaic. Uh, Tashlapun also signed, because by that point, they were only a, a, a fragment of their original population due to disease and warfare. And the Kitamanuk people, who uh, were Uto-Aztecians, uh, signed it, as did the uh, Yokut, the wetland Yokut. Uh, Tulumne Lake uh, would be one of their lakes. And they uh, all were working together to protect that land from intrusion of Los Angeles uh, settlers. And they did so successfully. And what I was uh, trying to uh, express was the, when the soldiers came in, they acknowledged in their reports to the U.S. military that the uh, Tejon Alliance was a, a, a strong military presence, and they give details about it. And what the, the uh, Tejon Alliance people did, including the Chumash, is they had the soldiers come up uh, the, what I call uh, the native name, Kutsetahovi Creek. That's in a lot of my writings. And that's the old Tejon Pass, but where the name Tejon came from. It actually, the uh, town of Kitamadik, the town of Konamatsur, is, uh, was translated Tejon by the Spanish. And they used that name for that pass, that, that creek. And the uh, Kitamadik people had uh, good houses, 
and uh, they were doing very well. And so they, what they did is they brought the soldiers up there, sh showing them their, their horses and their fields and the uh, a certain amount of herding that they had successfully uh, been take, you know, undertaking. And they avoided the town of Tin Lu, which was a very, very large town, and that's Hunamatsur. But the, by that point, the Yokuts had taken over that town because it had been devastated, totally devastated by the plagues. And the European introduced plagues. And so the wetland Yokuts came there in large numbers, but they were sick and they were poor and they had just thrown up homes. To, and so they, they uh, very cleverly didn't show that to the military when it came in. And so they, the military and the diplomat gave them very favorable uh, uh, treaty uh, conditions because they saw them as being strong but they also, in the treaty, put in a clause, which is in this book, that said that the Americans could build a fort there, and they wanted to control those two passes, Kutset Tohovi Pass and Tohon, what we call Tohon Pass today. It used to be Castaic Pass. Now, why is that, that not a, a surprise to us when we understand the United States government? Um, you also mentioned that on this time, the, not only the fort was built, but the, the land, the control of the people, including the, the, the Honchumash, where the towns were located near the foothills. And it's one character, and I, and I use the term uh, loosely, but the guy by the name of, and you write about it, Edward Beely, and yeah. the federal well, officer who was appointed to protect Native rights, and um, uh, about that, talk about this, uh, this guy. Um, who was he? And what was he responsible for? And we want to remind listeners, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Dr. John M. Anderson as part of our ongoing series, Beyond Missions, the History of the Chumash Nation, with today's episode focusing on the Tohon Chumash. And now back to the interview. Well, the, in my uh, writings, I always um, uh, point out the various uh, kind of scandalous things that Beale did and got away with. He, he was privileged. He came from a privileged family in Washington, D.C., moneyed family. And at that time, many Americans were getting themselves appointed as Indian agents so they could take the Indians' land for their own estate and use the Indians as free workers. And this is what happened at Tohon. Beale ended up, uh, he was the... Uh, Survey General of California, very right away when the, the, everything was in flux and, in Sacramento. And he got himself appointed to be the person who could survey that land, all the land. So he's, he bought some Spanish um, titles to land that hadn't been fully uh, legalized because, among other things, the people who wanted to make claims against the Tohon Indians uh, didn't dare go there because the Tohon was strong, and, and they, they were, had to build a, a ranch, a ranch house, and, and live in it, I think it's like for at least a year, and they were not able to do that. So Beale uh, used those titles, which he purchased for practically nothing, and uh, re-surveyed uh, them into 
what was the Cajon Reservation and claimed it for himself. The federal government, the other agents, some of the other agents protested and Beals set up uh, a private ranch and took some of the cattle from the, uh, the corporate uh, herd there at Cajon for his private cattle. Nothing was done about that. And the one after another, these agents tried to get him stopped, but he ended up owning the Cajon Reservation lands, the small, the, the remnant part of it, which was 25,000 acres. Initially, the treaty gave them what I just would estimate to be around a million acres, going all the way up to uh, uh, Lake Isabella, that's Tubatulavu territory, where the gold was, that, uh, among other gold areas that drew the Spanish into California initially. This is my theory, and you know it's hard to prove because we don't have access to the records, and there's very few armies that give you the actual purpose of, of you know their various uh, actions. So, but if you study California history ca carefully in those uh, years, you will see this uh, pattern of uh, early entry. Father Gesseras, who was a prospecting priest, came in there and. Uh, uh, very early, and found uh, the uh, Yokut uh, River there, the, the Tabatalaba River, and and he stopped there. And there's no records of where he went for, in his records, for a number of days. It's pretty evident that he went up to the Tabatalaba Gold, and which is Lake Isabella, not far from Tahom. So it turns out that all these people are interacting and working together to try to protect themselves from abuse by various uh, imperialist powers. And gold and silver was a high motivation factor in the story. Now this guy, the, in 1854 we're talking about, superintendent of Indian Affairs, really was, like what you said, he manipulated. And I wanted to stress this for our listeners. A lot of the Indian agents were not friends of the Indians. Some are, but most of them took advantage of that. Is that not right? That is true. I, I, it's like uh, Dr. Greg Schaff, when he wrote his uh, book on uh, Kashwa, the Santa Barbara Reservation, he talks about how the agent, whose name is Hope, ended up taking the land. The uh, city council of Santa Barbara uh, facilitated that, and he, that's what we now call Hope Ranch. And, you know, Greg was talking to me on the phone the other day, and he said, you know, for the Chumash, it was hopeless. Nobody would help him. And this is the general oh, exactly situation. Exactly. I just wanted the listeners to realize, you know, a lot of people talk about colonialism and uh, the, the, how its lands were invaded. But to tell these stories and tell the individuals, it gives them more of a, a colored, a more of a, a meat to the bone, you might say, about how this invasion and subsequent American invasion, what they did with and um, or they read the Spanish and the Mexican period, but mostly, especially this time of 1850s, especially when the state of California established itself. And I wanted to get that, you know, and understand. And the, and the book that we're talking about is the whole Chumash, the History Handbook, talks about this character and also some of the other agents in 1862, Agent Wentworth, and then how he was, um, how he was so 
and like you said, a lot of agents trying to talk to the federal government, and there was so much economic, uh, you might say, a control over these opinions, public control. And within this 1850s, what was happening up north got translated to down south about to kill an Indian was a good thing. To oppress yes. to massacres was a good thing. And I wanted to go back a little bit. It's not too much, Gary, but go back. And I wanted to, um, if you could explain, because I think it's important to look at this and, and what the climate was, because I think the 1851, it wasn't a nice climate for Native people. I mean, it wasn't, in, the treaty was established, not because the United States government, you know, wanted to protect Native people, but because the military and political situation at the time. Why don't you talk about a little bit about the Kostak Lake Massacre? People don't know about that. And what year was that? And what, what, how, did it, um, how did it end? Well, Beale hired a man named Bishop, and people who know Eastern California uh, history know that Bishop, uh, the town of Bishop is there um, in Eastern California, and Bishop was his, Beale's right-hand man at this point in time before Bishop had his own wealth. And Bishop was at um, the Pastoria Creek, and it, the town there was called Kuw, K-U-W. And he, built, he took over and, and built a little ranch there. This is the same place that later was the site where the camels, uh, the U.S. military built a camel um, center and because there was good water there. So Bishop came up with, according to the stories of the locals, local settlers, um, to Castaic Lake, moving up Pastoria Canyon, it's a trail, easily done, and came to Castaic, and they shot all the people of Castaic and had them run into the lake and then just shot them and killed them. And the story that, that I found that I thought was very telling was a story in the L.A. Star with uh, focusing on the eyewitness of white uh, uh, stagecoach riders going by Castaic Lake and seeing these bodies floating in the water. And because it, it was enough salt, those bodies were there for a long time before they slowly decayed. It was just a horrible time. Indians had no rights in court. They couldn't, if somebody came and, took your daughter or your son, you didn't have any right to take him to court. If he wanted a servant, you know, in his uh, home down you know, somewhere near the coast, he had a ranch, uh, he could do that. And they did do that. And so this was a very terrible time for the Tohon people, and it made them unable to effectively resist the abuses of the uh, federal agents who were taking their cattle and enriching themselves or selling it to the miners instead of letting the Tohon people, you know, feed themselves uh, the kind of nutrition that they needed. So what, what eventually happened there was the Beal became his family. He had a rich family in Washington, D.C. to begin with, but he left and uh, he died eventually. And his son, Truxton Beal, and people in Bakersfield know the name Truxton, there's uh, uh, streets named after him. He became so wealthy that he purchased the Hope Diamond, and that was the most expensive diamond in the world at the time. And this is the kind of money 
that was being generated by the the cattle and the fact that the Indians worked for virtually for free, and you know they got food and some simple clothing, and they eventually they sold to the owner of the Los Angeles Times, and he was um, Chandler, interested in setting up his own estate there, and he was a real estate uh, speculator, especially in the San Fernando Valley. San Fernando was a Chumash area, uh, in because only because the Humalabu Chumash were taken away from the coast and ended up as workers at the PSEC, uh, P-E-S-E-K, mission or production center. That's the San Fernando Production Center. And the syndicate ended up owning the Indians' land. And slowly but surely, before that, Beale had driven the Indians off the, uh, from their estates, their so-called treaty-protected homelands, or I mean homesteads, and they were, there's just a few of them left working as uh, uh, cowboys. Most of the original families who signed the treaty moved out to Bakersfield and to other, moved to the coast, uh, other places, because there was just beatings and and the ranch hands were destroying their homes and they had nowhere to go and the courts would not do anything about it. So that takes us to... That's why, uh, John, that, that's why my dad was talking about the Fort Tejone Treaty and about a lot of the relatives, even in Santa Barbara, were trying to get uh, retributions from that, but they uh, it fell on deaf ears. Now, just on this yeah. period, I don't want to get too much to talk about, I mean, Truxton, you got to know that name. And folks, you know, <laughs> oh my goodness, that whole history, talk about um, what you described. It was, it, it was like a legal um, monopoly of controlling of the legal courts against the, the whole treaty people, number one. But second of all, you had the, um, the courts siding with the, you know, the uh, Mexican titles confirmed mm-hmm. by the uh, American courts, which you already talked about. But then you also talked about um, this leader of the Tohon Indians called Juan Lusada. Talk about Juan a little bit to give the leader a little bit of, of the players of this massive cover-up and deceit, manipulation, and secondary activity of these people like Billy and Truxton and Chandler and you name it. There's a whole list of people. We won't have time for that here in this discussion. But once you talk about like Juan Lusada and other entities within these families that that lived in that area or tried to live in the area within this oppression that they experienced. Well, he uh, ended up being what I call the governor, that he, he who governs the surviving uh, families, and, who, and he had a, his own um, home and gardens and, and some cows and horses, a few horses. But, but slowly uh, but surely the Cone Ranch just pulled a stranglehold around uh, the various owners of this property, the Indian owners, and Juan Lozada was one of them, and they started by making it so they could not have cattle. And then they could only have a few horses. And it just continued like that until uh, finally there was a crisis where Juan Lozada was 
the uh, leader of the surviving people, and he went to court. And John Harrington came there and tried to help the Tohon Indians. And there's a lot of literature about his stay there, including writings of his wife uh, about Tohon life. And uh, like, for example, Juana of Tohon was a, a famous woman who Mary Beth uh, Harrington got to know. And so there is that kind of signature story of, of a visit there. And Harrington tried, he took the various, um, like the water um, controlling agencies uh, to court to try, because what the Tohon Ranch did was it cut off the water, the, the creek, the Kutset Tohovi Creek. So there was no water for these houses. And this is what triggered what we know today are the Bakersfield, uh, Chumash, and Kutset Tohovi people, Katamanuk, uh, who then moved out because they couldn't possibly stay there any longer. And we want to remind listeners, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Dr. John M. Anderson as part of our ongoing series, Beyond Missions, the History of the Chumash Nation, with today's episode focusing on the Tohon Chumash. And now back to the interview. So in, in the end, the syndicate in L.A., when Chandler decided to sell, a syndicate of businessmen, speculators, real estate speculators, bought the title to Tohon Ranch, which the old reservation was in the center of it. And today, the uh, title is being used to, uh, by the owners to propose a large uh, increase in, in uh, structures there, uh, basically... Uh, you know, uh, second homes for the rich in L.A., doctors and lawyers and whatnot, their little hacienda overlooking the uh, old reservation lands, but the Indians got no land and no homes there. And that's still going on today. Uh, there is a, uh, a Tohon Indian uh, re- uh, tribe now that got re-recognized as, by the federal government but they claim to be Katamanuk, and the Chumash are still there in Bakersfield and in Los Angeles and Santa Barbara and whatnot, and they have not been able to get any tribal recognition. Going back to your Truxman deal, uh, he sold it to LA Times, and that whole syndicate, you talked about that. What you had a federal agent, C. Ashbury, was assigned to investigate because a lot of the sympathizers, Aaron was only one folk, but there's other people, religious individuals and so on, that understood that these native people, that the home people, uh, had the land, had, had ownership of the land because of the treaty, but they completely ignored it and was, um, this federal agent was investigated, but his, um, his efforts to protect the Tohon Indians, land title went to not, and that you had people like E.G. Emmons, who you mentioned, and you had, and therefore you have uh, uh, pressure to move these Indians, and it was really interesting, because we just had a story on the uh, Owens Valley, and the nature of Native people within California, moving them out of the way, and the hell with the treaties, but you had this pressure 
to bear the removal of other marginalized grazing lands and the mountains to the Owens Valley area, which I thought was not only interesting, but how remarkable the courts and the federal agents really looked at that and the sense of uh, bowing uh, down to these very influential real estate syndicate, much less a newspaper owner that have very much influence under the, under the name and whatnot. But this ranch uh, syndicate uh, was denounced by the federal investigator. But at the same time, could you kind of overview of, because we're almost done with the conversation regarding the Tohon, because there's a lot of factors into it. There was a push and pull. Of, I, I look at it in the sense of, push and pull, like, it's much like in Sinegitas, even though uh, it's a little different, but in you know, Coswell over here in Santa Barbara with Thomas Hope and other villages within the Santa Barbara area. But you, you had in that area, you had people really had, the federal government, you had some individuals that wanted to, some type of resolution, but to the land yeah. claims, but that in the legal courts, they went to the legal courts, and could you kind of review that for our listeners real quick? Sure. Because a lot of times when a lot of, the, you know, a lot of people talk about it, well, you people just lost the war. You people just had a treaty and everything. Oh, and no. You have a treaty just like, just like the Treaty of Ruby Valley or just like the Treaty of, of um, Fort Laramie Treaty. It wasn't a sweetheart deal. It was very much of a struggle, and they lost out at the end uh, and even talked to us about, what happened to the treaty? So why don't we lead up to that? Oh, well, let's, let's start with what happened to the treaty. It goes back to uh, soon after the signing of the treaty, the senators in Washington, D.C. decided collectively to hide the treaties, to put them in a vault, and keep them hidden away for 50 years to ensure that the Native peoples couldn't go to court and claim their treaty rights and just outrageous behavior, and not, nobody did anything about it. And so we couldn't even see the documents to know where these treaties were. And of course, by the time I started doing my research, they were available, but it was too late. Now the attitude at that point was, this would be 1900. Well, it's all, you know, water under the bridge. What do we want to go back and revisit all those issues? And you know, these grave injustices need to be revisited. And so I'll tell you about Terrell. He comes in, he's from L.A., he's got an office and has responsibility uh, that makes him feel like there's been abuse of the Tohon Indians, their water rights, their other rights, their human rights. And he tries to take, go to court and he goes to local court in Bakersfield and gets nowhere because, of course, Bakersfield was very conservative and very white in those days in terms of who controlled the city. And it ends up in the Supreme Court, and Supreme Court rules against Fort uh, Beal and uh, against the Indians. And that was like a death blow to their act their ability to protect themselves. And eventually what, what the ranch started doing was ripping out the houses one by one whenever an Indian went 
somewhere to visit a friend or take care of his dying relatives or whatever. If he was gone, they ripped out the place. And this is a little bit covered in, in this. It's a small handbook. It was designed for use by the various tribes or uh, maybe the bookstores, museums, and whatnot. Uh, an inexpensive small book that, that gives the overview. The details of all of that are in my larger studies about the Tahone people and the Chumash, the Mountain Chumash. So Terrell was not successful. Juan Lozada eventually uh, had to uh, leave himself. He, he tried to keep uh, land that he had on uh, another uh, Cedar Canyon away from Kutset Tehovi Canyon, thinking that Bill would be content to, to leave you know, uh, marginal homesteads in place. But no, they ripped those out too. And so Lozada ended up um, you know, just a broken-hearted leader. Everything went downhill for, from, for everybody. And you know, at that time, Terrell said that the case of these Indians, other than, uh, I'm reading this little statement here, under, under this contention, is surely one of the strongest, if not the strongest, in the state of California. So he felt that if he couldn't win that case of the Tohon Indians, including the Chumash, that he couldn't win any case to help the Indians. And that's what happened. Interesting, John, you also wrote that the Tohon Indians' lands were returned. The state faced a potential flood of new cases crowding the region courts with land disputes that would threaten the economic interests of established order, which had carefully excluded Native from participation in California's economic prosperity. You know, I think that was underlying within the whole activity because whether it be Chandler or other individuals, uh, Trexton or other people, numerous people we can't even mention here on this interview, but the last of the Tribune Chumash relocated Vegas for another areas, and that's what we're talking about there. But there was a massive amount, just like in Northern California, the genocide and the Holocaust with Northern Cal. <coughs> it was terrible. I even choke on it. I even choke when I talk about it. <laughs> percolated yes. its effect within, within Southern California and the treatment you know, of, of Native peoples, of original California peoples, of First Peoples, was second to none, and that this was the, California was the last stronghold, you might say, of the, since the colonial apparatus with the 13 colonies and the invasion from the East, and the Spaniards and their colonies of the production centers finally gave its weight to all the California Native peoples, and that we can see that the horn was kind of like a outline of what happened to a lot of villages, towns, and areas within California. That that sentiment, that 1850s, the slave men of Native people, the killing massacres, the other people, whether it be Lindsay or, or Medley or other works of nowadays, that um, talk about this genocide and Holocaust. What your writing does, it gives some meat to actually what happened and that people just don't know within the Chumash people, in the uh, Chumashia, as we said in the very beginning of the discussion, that these rich materials give a basis of understanding colonialism, number one, but understanding where we are as Chumash people 
and our long and, and hard struggle to keep our land. And also, if we're talking about restitution, like the state of California does about truth and healing, they need to talk to the two mass people of different variety of areas in order to get the true story. And that's why we call this series Missions and Beyond, the True Mass History. So we want to thank you, John, for participation in the discussion here in American Indian Airways. We can talk about a lot about this area and other areas, and we will in the future of our series here on American Indian Airways. Thank you, John. The moment of silence is over. And that was Dr. John M. Anderson on our ongoing series, Beyond Missions, the history of the Chumash Nation, with today's episode focusing exclusively on the Tahon Chumash. For more information about Dr. John Anderson's archival and library work, you can visit the website johnandersonlibrary.org. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guest for the hour, Dr. John Anderson. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studios of Burnt Swamp Studios in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. And for the innocent, you can't justify why your freedom manifests on their graves. And the blood never comes clean from the guilty minds, nor the hands that hold the chains. Silence is over.